This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for October 13, 2017. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Sarah Tishkoff talks with us about genes important in human skin pigmentation. When did they arise and what have they been up to lately? And David Grimm gives us this week's hits from our online news site. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. Our first story is on looking inside of babies' brains. Dave, why do we need to see inside the head of a baby? Is this a medical need? Well, there's some really important stuff that happens in the first few weeks of a baby's life and actually some really important warning signs that you really want to monitor. You want to monitor for abnormal brain activity. If the baby's at risk of stroke, you'd want to figure out where the stroke might be emanating from. But this is really hard to do right now. Right, because they are wiggly, so you're not right. going to put them in an fMRI. Right, exactly. These You can think, well, why don't we just use an fMRI? But the fMRI is these giant metal machines. They make tons of noise. you got to sit real still. Right. That's not a great environment for a baby. You could also use EEG, those sort of wires you attach to your head. But those, while they're a lot easier for a baby to take, actually don't give you a whole lot of high-resolution detail, which is really what you want for this kind of stuff. The innovation here is they got a really small device that can peer much more deeply into a kid's brain in, say, a very heavily intensive medical situation. So what is it? What does this use? What kind of detector is it? And how is it different than what we have now? Well, this is a domino-sized device. So it's pretty small, and it relies on extremely fast ultrasound waves. Now, these waves can detect tiny changes in blood volume within blood vessels. They can also approximate electrical activity in neurons. So they really give you a much higher resolution image of the brain than current technology does, but also it's very portable. It's just a, you know, as I said, it's a small domino sized device. It just has a wire that runs from it to a computer. So you don't need a lot of heavy, noisy equipment. Mm -hmm. And this new approach, it takes advantage of the way the skull develops. They actually peer in through the fontanelle. 
Yes, and and that this is this is this membrane covered gap between the bones of an infant's skull, which hardens when the bones fuse around age two. But right now, we're interested in much younger babies, so that's totally fine. So, how do these measurements um, using the fontanelle, using ultrasound, compare with current technology? Are we seeing deeper? Are we seeing further into the brain? Well, one thing you could do was you could tell between the two phases of sleep and napping newborns between active sleep. And quiet sleep, but also when combined with EEG, the probes actually detected seizures in two infants whose cortexes had developed abnormally, and they were even able to tell. The researchers were even able to tell where in the brain the seizures started. So, in terms of your question, researchers are actually getting a lot more information than they were getting before, and again, without having to use these big bulky machines. So, one thing I think we should talk about is that you know. Baby brain development has kind of been really difficult to keep track of in live babies. Is this going to change that? Yeah, it's really been a black box. And what this really could change is this ability to not only monitor this very early development, but also even maybe explore the developmental origins of diseases like autism. But let's not get ahead of ourselves here. This one of the big disadvantages of this of current technology is it relies on the fontanelle. So we're very reliant on very young children, but also it's only imaging the area right around the fontanelle. So it's not giving us the entire brain here. But the researchers hope that with further refinements to the technology, they'll be able to see a lot more of the baby brain. Now we have a story on rice domestication times three. I love the headline, Dave. Rice, so nice, it was domesticated thrice. (laughs) And it means three times in three different continents, Asia, Africa, and now South America. And that last one is the new edition? That's the new edition. We already knew about Asia and Africa, but there had been some debate about whether rice had been independently domesticated in South America, and this new study suggests that it was. So it was there, there was a grain, people were eating it, but the question was, Did they tailor it to their needs? Exactly. And how long ago did this happen? Mm -hmm. And now there's this evidence from phytoliths, which are what? They are these microscopic bits of silica that are drawn from the soil that accumulate in the tissues of plants as they grow. Now, researchers can use these because they can persist after the vegetation decays. And from this, scientists can actually decipher from the shapes of these phytoliths, the genus and sometimes the species of the plant in which they formed and whether they came from the stalk, leaves, and seeds. And what all this means is if you're going digging at an archaeological site, you can actually look at these phytoliths that may be thousands of years old and figure out how the rice has changed over time. And that's what they did. They found how many years worth of rice layers in this site in the Amazon. Right. They looked at this uh, trench at Monte Castello, which is an archaeological site in in the southwest Amazon basin in Brazil. It was occupied for millennia from more than 9,000 years ago up until the 14th century. And what they found at the site was that the phytoliths increased in size and number from the oldest layers into the youngest. And that indicates they were modifying the rice grains to make them larger. Right. Okay. So another interesting part of the story is This domestication event, when they timed it, probably coincided with a change in the climate. Can you talk about that? Well, they think this rice domestication or cultivation was a response to increasing rainfall at Monte Castello from about 6,000 to 4,000 years ago. And that rainfall would have expanded wetlands and caused seasonal flooding, and those would be good conditions for raising rice. 
All right. So is there still this rice in South America? Or can I go to Brazil and, and have some? No, you can't <laughs> because um, with the population decline in the region and cultural disruption that came from European colonization, that was a death knell for this particular type of rice. And the rice ended up coming from other places. But now we at least have a sense historically of what had happened before these events. Last up, we have a story on geese migrating into cities. Okay, Dave, I don't want to start a whole discussion about this, but I'm going to have a hard time saying Canada goose and Canada geese because when I grew up, we said Canadian goose Ah. and Canadian geese. I don't know about you. Well, apparently, I don't remember, but apparently (laughs) our style is Canada geese, and so that's what we'll be saying. Of of course, and I'm going to slip up, though, so just be prepared for that. Um, Have you seen many flying geese in the sky lately. I've heard some honking. I've heard some honking. They're really big birds. How far are they going? They actually migrate pretty far. They tend to spend their summers in Canada and the northern United States and their winters in the southern United States and northern Mexico. But actually, as the climate's been warming up, the geese have been wintering uh, farther and farther north, which means they're not migrating nearly as far as they were before. Yeah, this study actually centers around Chicago, which is pretty far north. Right. And, and one of the interesting trends researchers have observed is that these geese tend to be spending more time in the city of Chicago than in the surrounding countryside. Let's get the radio transmitters out and prove it. <laughs> right. Well, we all, with birds, we're, we're, like, we're always talking about radio transmitters, and such is the case here. Researchers got 41 adult geese from the greater Chicago area. They slapped radio transmitters on them. They monitored them for in fall and the winter of 2014 to 2016. And what they found is that very few geese ventured outside the city to nearby fields where food would have been much easier to find. And that's kind of surprising. And the reason seems to be well, what do you think the reason is, Sarah? You know what the reason is. Uh, well, garbage tastes so much more delicious <laughs> right. than whatever is in the fields. But the big problem is hunters. I mean, they're scared of hunters. And in fact, of the birds that foraged in the countryside, just 48% made it through the winter. But all of the birds that stayed in the city survived. What's so crazy about this is that it's safer to be amongst a million people than, say, in a field all by yourself with perhaps a small group of people lurking by. Right. And so staying in the city seems to be good for geese, but maybe not so good for us because these geese can be kind of aggressive. And if we all remember the miracle on the Hudson when uh, the plane crashed uh, on the Hudson River in 2009, that was actually caused by a flock of geese hitting the plane. Okay, what else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about why we may not want to call vaccines vaccines. Also a story about what ancient DNA is revealing about the history of Easter Island. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about a deadly plague that is on the move in Madagascar. Also a story about why publishers are taking a popular academic networking site to court. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Graham is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. A study this week in science uses a diverse set of genomes from African people to investigate the genes behind skin pigmentation. Sarah Tishkoff is here to talk to us about the variations they found and their history. Welcome, Sarah. 
Thank you. What made you decide to do this study? What new things can we learn about skin pigment by looking at a variety of genomes from within Africa and outside of Africa? Well, we're interested generally in looking at uh, genomic and phenotypic diversity in Africa. So we're interested in evolutionary history. We're interested in better understanding how humans have adapted to different environments. And uh, we're interested in understanding the genetic basis of one of the most variable traits in humans, which is skin color. How did you look at this? Where did you draw the genomes from? And how did you quantify the phenotype? What characteristics did you look at to connect with these genes? So we included uh, populations that represent both genetic diversity and diversity for a number of different traits uh, from Ethiopia, Tanzania, and Botswana. We quantified skin color by using a spectrophotometer where basically we shine light underneath the arm. And by looking at the reflectance of that light, we can infer what the pigmentation levels are. What did you find when you looked across these genomes? Did you find new variants, new correlations that you hadn't expected between genes and skin color? Well, yes. First, I should mention that we saw a huge range of uh, diversity in terms of skin color. So we found that the most lightly pigmented uh, individuals tended to be from a population called the San, who until recently uh, were traditional hunter-gatherers. And they happen to have the oldest genetic lineages in the world. And the darkest skin colors that we observe are in people who have Nilo-Saharan ancestry, who are traditionally um, pastoralist and originated from southern Sudan. We looked at genomic diversity in these populations, and we look for associations with skin pigmentation. And we found a number of um, associations, and we found a number of novel genes and novel uh, variants that are associated with skin color. One thing, one of the things I was surprised by in this study was how old these variants are, how long these genes and these alleles have been with humans. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Those variants that are associated with either light or dark skin have been around for hundreds of thousands of years predating the origin of modern humans. What does that say about skin pigment in our ancestors, those that came before modern humans? So at roughly half of the sites where we see an association with skin color, the ancestral variant is the one associated with white skin. And that's perhaps not too surprising because our closest genetic relatives are the chimpanzee. We're thought to have uh, the human lineage diverged from the chimpanzee lineage sometime around five to six million years ago. And we know that chimpanzees have relatively light skin. So the thought was that during the uh, evolution of hominins, our ancestors, particularly in the genus Homo that arose around two and a half million years ago in Africa, that when our ancestors left the forest and went into the savanna, that first there would have been um, selection to lose body hair and to increase the number of sweat glands because it's better for thermal regulation in very hot areas. Mm -hmm. But if you lose body hair, then there's going to be selection for darker, more darkly pigmented skin. And so it's thought that that is when uh, more darkly pigmented skin could have originated. However, we see variants associated with both light and dark skin that have been around for a very long time. 
which implies that our ancestors could have been more moderately pigmented, perhaps not as darkly pigmented as the Nilo-Saharans that we see today in East Africa, perhaps not as lightly pigmented as the San in Southern Africa. There's also a possibility that these populations were geographically in geographically diverse regions of Africa, and there could have been selective pressures to have variable skin color even back then. The other thing that our study shows is that it's not just light skin that has been evolving. It's both dark and light skin that has been evolving throughout human evolution. What do these gene variants that you found tell us about the movement of very early people in Africa and then out of Africa? So our study is informative for reconstructing both recent and ancient migrations. So for example, we found that a variant associated with light skin color outside of in Europeans was introduced back into Africa at least 5,000 years ago. And it's very common now in parts of Ethiopia and Tanzania. We even see it in Southern Africa, which also tells us something about the history of migration of people who are currently in Southern Africa from East Africa. We also see that variants associated with dark pigmentation that were identified in African populations are also present in South Asia and Australomelanesia. And we show that they're on the identical chromosome background, essentially. And what that means is that they are identical by descent from an ancestral African population. They did not arise independently in that region. So that's really telling us something about ancient migration events during the, um, the migration of modern humans out of Africa. What are these results, the age of these variants, the number you found, the phenotypes associated with them? What does this say about race as a biological construct and its relationship to genetics and skin color? So the first thing is that this study shows us that skin color is a terrible classifier of race. We see darkly pigmented people, not just in Africa, we see them in South Asia and Australomelanesia. And then in Africa, we see a whole range of skin colors. There is no such thing as a homogeneously darkly pigmented group of people in Africa. Secondly, we see a lot of genetic variation in Africa, which is not consistent with biological concepts of race. And thirdly, we see that these genetic variants that are associated with skin color, for example, some are associated with light skin color and were introduced outside of Africa, but they have an African origin. So I think this, that this research really disputes biological concepts of race. In terms of the functions of these genes, they change the color of skin, but do they also relate to other things we know um, relate to skin pigmentation, like UV protection and uptake of vitamins, things like that? Well, one of the genes that we identified, MFSD12, is entirely newly described. It didn't even have a name until about two years ago. And it is impacting pigmentation in a completely novel manner. So that's going to um, lead to some future research to better understand the mechanism because it's not expressed in melanosomes where we would have expected to see it. That's the place where the um, melanin is produced, uh, which is the black-brown pigment. Instead, we saw it expressed in lysozymes or lysozyme-like structures. This could have implications about the uh, biology of skin pigmentation that's going to require further exploration. One thing that we can say, based on also knocking this out in zebrafish and mouse, is that this gene is having a direct impact on 
pheomelanin production. That's the red-yellow pigment uh, in skin. And it seems to have an indirect impact on eumelanin production. That's the black-brown pigment in skin. Hmm. The other region that we saw um, a strong association with skin color, interestingly, was a region that encompasses a number of genes that play a role in UV response and risk for melanoma. And one of the genes in this region, which is a top candidate gene, is DDB1. And it plays a critical role in repairing DNA after damage caused by UV exposure. In fact, people who have uh, mutations in either this gene or the part of the protein complex it forms may have a recessive disorder called xeroderma pigmentosum. Uh, They can't be exposed at all to sunlight because they will get skin cancer because they're not able to repair damage to their DNA. Now, we didn't know what this has to do with normal variation in skin color in humans, but interestingly, we found that this gene plays a role in uh, the color of tomatoes. <laughs> so, And it's actually highly conserved between humans and plants, cross species. But interestingly, we found that um, the chromosomes that had the variants associated with light skin underwent a what's called a selective sweep after they were introduced outside of Africa. So during the migration of modern humans out of Africa, these chromosomes were so, for whatever reason, so advantageous that they just swept to almost 100% frequency in Eurasian populations. And that's something that will require further research to figure out what is the selective force? Was it for skin color or was it for something else? Because right. these genes have multiple functions. Right. And this reminds me of another point from the paper. Most of the research into the skin pigmentation genes has been done with European genomes. So this this look at African genomes really opens up a new way to look at this type of variation. That's exactly right. The focus on uh, European populations has really resulted in, I think, a biased perspective on the evolution of human skin color. So for one thing, if you just look in in Europeans, you're going to tend to find more recent mutations. You're not identifying the older mutations. In addition, you're missing entirely some of these novel genes that we identified because they're not variable in Europeans. So when these uh, variants that are associated with light skin were introduced outside of Africa, in some cases, they went to almost 100% frequency in Europeans and sometimes in East Asians, probably due to selection. And for that reason, they would never have been identified if we had just focused on European populations. So because we see so much genomic and phenotypic diversity in Africa, they're particularly informative for mapping this trait, and and I'm sure for mapping other complex traits. Sarah, thanks so much for talking with me. It's my pleasure. Sarah Tishkoff and colleagues write about genes associated with skin pigment, this week in science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site, 
to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.